my word, they need your word. And I don't need my need. These people do not need my word, they need your word. And I don't need my word, I need your word. And so we're together going to sit under your authority and we're going to hear you speak. Open our ears, not just our physical ears, to hear the syllables that come out of my mouth. Go into the ear and down the canal and into the brain. Help us to open our spiritual ears and to hear what you have for us today. God, I pray for our hearts. I pray that our hearts would be open. The deepest level of thinking in our being happens there. And so, God, I pray you'd open up the eyes of our heart this morning. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that this morning they would come face to face with you, the God of the universe, and they would be changed. And I pray they would be repentant and they would believe in Jesus this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have in John 21 to close out this book. It has been such a delight. It's been such an honor to stand before your people and proclaim your word and to just receive from you over the last year or so or close to it. And I just thank you for this book. I thank you for the evangelistic heart of the the writer, John the Evangelist. And I thank you that by your grace, we've been able to see that you are Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that we're having life in your name through this study of your word. And so I just pray that you would give us that again this morning. And uh, God, we just trust that you're going to help us and uh, help me as I, as I preach this morning. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. It is no accident this morning that we are in John chapter 21 because at 11.45 I'm going to be preaching in 1 Peter 5. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter takes what he learns from Jesus in John 21 and he applies it not just to himself, but to every single elder who would be an elder from the point of Peter forward. And so what we're seeing today in this passage, in this chapter, is applicable for what I'm going to preach on for Hank's ordination service here in a little bit. And it was timely. We've been preaching through this book for 40-something weeks. And it was the very week, this week, that we end that we scheduled Hank's ordination service. And it just works perfect. Isn't God neat to do things like that? And so this morning, we're going to look at what Peter applies, not just to himself. Peter applies this to every pastor or church elder that would ever come from him forward in 1 Peter chapter 5. So this is a monumental conversation that Jesus and Peter have. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus and Peter. Jesus and Peter will cover all of John chapter 21. When we sin, this is the question I have for you this morning. When we sin, you and I, where do we run? Where do we go when we sin? When you sin again in the same way that you've sinned before and you keep battling that same sin and it feels like overcoming the sin that the Bible tells us has been destroyed in our lives, when it feels like the overcoming of that sin is incredibly slow, and you feel like you're getting beat up, and you come back to Galatians 6, and it's sin will have no dominion over you because you're under grace, not under the law, and you remember that, and you go to Christ again, and it just feels like this crawl. What do we do, and where do we go when we keep battling the same sin? When questions rise up in us like this, I cannot believe that I was capable of that. I've learned to not be shocked by what I can or can't do, more specifically what I can't do, or what I can do, not to the positive, but to the negative. When questions come up like this, I can't believe I keep failing like this, or feeling like this internally. Am I going to feel like this forever, battling these same feelings, whatever they may be? Or this, I'm ashamed with myself. 
Well, often when those questions do bubble up or the same battle that we've waged for years about that same sin keeps coming back, the last thing we feel comfortable doing is running to Jesus. The enemy whispers and our flesh rises up. Clean yourself up first. Can't run to Jesus. Don't pray. Who do you think you are, you hypocrite? Don't pray right now. Read your Bible first, and then maybe, just maybe, you can pray again. Think about the biggest failure of your life when you messed up the most. It was the rock bottom point of your life. What did you feel like? What's going through your mind? Your emotions? Is it possible to sin too much? to screw up too much, to be too far. And for many of us, it's a frightening reality that our biggest mess-ups are actually ahead of us. And if that's true, and it's true for many of us, where are we going to turn? Where are we going to run? What are we going to do? Will Jesus be there for us? Or will He wipe His hands with us? I'm done. Will we walk away from Jesus in shame with our head held low, or will we run straight to Him? Look at Him, set our eyes upon Him, and run toward Him. Well, I want to consider Peter, because Peter is a great example of this. And I love Peter. Peter's just like so many of us. In fact, even after Pentecost and after Peter preaches, Peter still goes on and he acts goofy sometimes. I don't know if I'm the only one in here that acts goofy sometimes, but with Peter, I feel like I'm in good company because I see Peter and he just he's a man the rest of his life that just needs Jesus. And I find myself that I am a man who the rest of my life is going to need Jesus. And you are somebody who's going to need Jesus the rest of your life. Is Jesus going to be there? Or is He going to get tired of us? Why don't you just shape up? Why don't you just grow up finally? What's He like? Well, first, we're going to look at a fishing trip. Jesus has resurrected. They, the apostles and some others, had been able to witness Jesus once already. We looked at that in John chapter 20. And they'd seen Him another time. And now, Peter and the boys are out fishing. And if you like fishing, you know the joy that comes with that, even if it's a vocation. Many of you would like to think, boy, I wish fishing was my vocation. Ryan Deaton, uh, Dan Malore, the fishermen out there. They're out fishing, and Jesus shows up. Look at verse 1 through 8 in John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, And the sons of Zebedee, two others of the disciples, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, Hey, we're going to go with you. They went out, got into a boat, and by that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because, there were, because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. 
and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. So Jesus is alive. Peter has already seen him at least once. Presumably, however, Peter has not yet had the one-on-one conversation with Jesus. Jesus shows up last week, and it's Jesus and Thomas, and Thomas has his moment with Jesus and puts his hand in the side and sees the scars in Jesus' hand, the healed scars. But Peter kind of looks at Jesus across the room and wonders, are we okay? There's tension in the room. Everybody knows what Peter has done. Well, Peter's out fishing, Jesus leaves, and Jesus and Peter don't have their showdown yet, or at least what we think will be a showdown. And so there's a little bit of a nervousness, I imagine, that Peter has, and the other disciples wondering, I wonder why Jesus didn't talk to Peter yet. What's going to happen when they finally have a conversation? The whole denial thing is still hovering over Peter's head. You know, it's, it's like the elephant in the room where everybody knows like something's up, everybody's nervous about it. But life goes on, Peter goes fishing with the boys, back to somewhat life as normal. And four, Jesus shows up, verse four, Jesus shows up on the beach, says, throws it on the other side, it's kind of a familiar scene. I mean, if, you've, if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, this is a very similar scene, pre-cross and resurrection, where Jesus says, hey, put it over there and you'll catch some fish. You know, in Matthew, Peter answers back and he says, well... We've been fishing all night, and we didn't catch anything, but okay. And they catch something. So it's a familiar scene. In John 7, or in 21.7, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said, It's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Peter, not yet able to talk to Jesus about everything that went down. It's almost like in his mind he's saying, Enough's enough. If that's the Lord, I'm going to him. I'm not going to wait in the boat. I'll leave the fish. Enough's enough. I know he'll have me. I've got to get to him. Notice the direction of Peter. It's not shame, although he could have easily felt ashamed. It's not running away from Jesus in a shy manner. It's not Peter trying to fix himself before he gets to Jesus. He just has to be with Jesus. He's the only one that abandons ship, abandons the haul of fish and all just to get to Jesus. And this is absolutely crucial. He just denied Jesus. Jesus just told him, Peter, this is what you're going to do. Oh no, G- no Jesus, I-, I would die for you. I wouldn't deny you. No way. I wouldn't do that. And then Peter goes and denies even knowing his best friend, his Savior and Lord Jesus. If you put yourself in those shoes, you would feel awkward the next time you bumped into your friend, denying even knowing him. Imagine what he must have felt. When you wrong somebody, when you are the perpetrator of the wrongdoing, how does that make you feel? I mean, the tension is there. Well, Peter, when he had wronged Jesus, he knows I just have to be near him. And so he runs to him. He doesn't run away. So easy in situations like this, avoidance is the status quo behavior. And we live in a society today that loves to avoid everything. Avoid texting back. Avoid calling back. Avoid that conversation. I'll just never talk to them again. You ever not call somebody back or forget to call somebody back and the next time you see him, you're like, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I, 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 I missed it or something. You know, something rises up 
And sometimes that's actually the case. And don't lie. I don't really, <laughs> that's not a good thing to lie to them. But there's something that rises up of an embarrassment that I didn't, there's something between us. I didn't call back yet. I should have. So there's tension and he runs to Jesus. When he gets to Jesus on the beach, he finds Jesus doing something rather ordinary. Look at verse 9. They got out of the land. They got out on land. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 150 of them. Pause real quick. That is a unique historical authenticator of this book. When people write myth or folklore, they don't include details like 153 fish. This is a really interesting side point when in apologetics, when you find numbers like this, specific numbers, not just a bunch of fish, there was 153 fish. It's because they counted them out. One, two, three, four, and it was recorded. Sidebar over. And altogether, there were so many. The net was torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They all knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, apparently, Jesus had done some fishing of his own. Because before the fish got there, he had already began to make breakfast. Fish. So Jesus apparently is a fisherman as well. He picked up some fish and began to make breakfast and said, Hey, bring some of those 153 fish and we'll make some more and let's eat together. A normal breakfast with the fellows. Just like before, but Peter's there. And just like the dialogue that happened with Thomas, they're all together again and Jesus and Thomas talk. Now it's time. It's front and center. We're there with them on the beach, around the fire, and Jesus begins to speak to Peter. What does he say? Well, let's take a look. We're going to look at three rounds of conversation with Jesus and Peter. First, let's just read 15 through 17, and then we'll take it one verse at a time. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. And he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus said. Now, much can be said about Jesus calling Peter in verse 15, Simon Peter. And much can be said about the different uses of the Greek word for love. But I think we can focus on the big idea here with this grace. Now, when I say that, when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He says, and he uses the word for agape love. And then when Peter answers Jesus back, he uses the word phileo, or for, you know, the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. He uses that word. And so there's much that could be said about that. And I would encourage you, go and study that. Go and study. Go get your Strong's Concordance out. Go get a Bible 
study or a commentary and dive into that, but I think we can get the gist of the conversation back and forth by looking at this big idea of grace. Notice the question that Peter is asked is in front of everybody. We're all there with them now, and Jesus talks to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He publicly asks the question, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? In verse 15. Now, commentators go back and forth on what Jesus means more than these. And the two primary ways to look at that is either Jesus is asking, Peter, do you love me more than these? So the fish, the haul that was just caught. So Peter's way of income, his life's work, do you love me more than these? Or Jesus saying, in which most commentaries agree with this, and this is where I land, Peter's being asked, Peter, do you love me more than these other people? Do you love me more? Okay? Do you love me more than these? You know, if I was sitting in the crowd, I'd be like, what do you mean? I hope not. I love you more than Peter loves you, Jesus. It's pretty obvious. He just denied you publicly three times. But he asked, do you love me more than these? And I think that is the most accurate way to understand it. Do you love me more than these? Peter answers back, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed, feed them, my lambs. So what Jesus tells them is to give them what is essential for their development, sustenance, their maintenance, what they need to live, feed them, Peter. That's what I want you to do for my lambs. He asks him again in verse 16, do you love me? Peter says, you know, Lord, you know that I love you. And in verse 16, the last words of the verse, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. Not feed, tend. Tend means shepherd, to shepherd or to guide or to rule or lead the sheep. There is a responsibility, Peter. Keep in mind, he's saying this publicly to Peter in front of everybody else. Guide them. Help them. Lead them. Shepherd them. Tend my sheep. And then verse 17, round three. Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's grieved. He's not grieved at Jesus. He is grieved to his core that Jesus would need to ask him this in his mind. Convinced or convicted, Peter is. Not upset with Jesus, but grieved with himself. Lord, he appeals to Jesus' omniscience. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus says again, feed my sheep. Not feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So I want to pull out four observations from this passage. Four observations from this three rounds of dialogue between Peter and Jesus. Again, we get to be, I love this because the Bible just puts us right there. I mean, we're on the beach with them, we're hearing the conversation, and I think there are four things that we can observe from this passage that are really, really clear. Observation number one, the sheep belong to Jesus. The sheep belong to Jesus. Jesus did not tell Peter, Peter, feed your sheep. He said, feed my lambs, my sheep, my sheep. Feed, tend, feed. All of them are mine. These sheep are mine. Peter, these are not your sheep. Whatever Peter is going to be called to do, he is called to recognize that the sheep belong to Jesus. They're Jesus' sheep. They're not Peter's to use or misuse. 
They're not his to possess. They're in the possession of another. Whatever Peter's relationship is to the sheep, it's not primary, it's secondary. Jesus' relation to his sheep is primary. So for Peter to do what Jesus is asking him to do is for Peter to recognize these people do not belong to me. They belong to Jesus. Peter is going to jump onto this in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I encourage you, anybody that you can, please stay for the ordination service because we're going to get into this even in greater detail. But it's like Peter saying, please, Peter, to do what I'm asking you to do, know that they're mine. They're mine. They don't belong to you. That's crucial. Observation number two. Peter is to feed the lambs and to feed the sheep. In verse 15, Jesus says, lambs, feed my lambs. In verse 17, he says, feed my sheep. There, is a, there really is a weird phenomenon in, in many church cultures today, and we love the church, so don't hear me say, I rarely ever say the church in any way that's, that's negative, because we love the church, the bride. But somehow or another, there has been a culture of sheep shaming by shepherds, unfortunately, shaming sheep for wanting to be fed. Shepherds mocking sheep, calling them fat. All you want to do is feed on God's Word. You just want to feed. You don't want to do anything. You just want to feed. And sadly, many church members today know more about pastoral ministry than so much of what so-called shepherds are doing today. If a pastor doesn't feed the sheep, by default, he's not a pastor. The call for Peter is to feed them, to give them what they need. And Peter is representative of all pastors. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, that Peter knows, I'm supposed to do this to feed his sheep, Jesus' sheep. They need nourishment, and my responsibility is to give them what they need. And Jesus makes a distinction between lambs and sheep. Lambs and sheep. Lambs are representative of younger, weaker believers in the faith. And across the board, there are younger, weaker believers in the faith in this room. And there are also sheep or being representative of older, stronger Christians, there are also older and stronger Christians in the body of Christ as well. The Bible actually uses these, this language, weaker and stronger Christians. Not better, uh, not containing more of God's favor upon them, but weaker and stronger. The irony of Christian weakness and strength is that the strongest Christians actually are the ones who know how weak they are. And the Weakest Christians are the ones who beat their chest and they're fully convinced of how strong they are. So those who walk around parading themselves as being godly and holy are the ones who are absolutely weak. And the strongest of our brothers and sisters, the strongest of the sheep are the ones who are like, I desperately need Jesus. I am messed up. I need Him. And I'm thankful that I have Him. Weak and strong. And Peter here is commissioned to feed both groups. And you know what that means? Peter's going to have to know them. He's going to have to know the other apostles that are here, these young men, 
that are around him. And he's going to have to know anybody else who he ever shepherds or pastors, any other believer. You know, when he would preach, not many days from now at Pentecost, 3,000 people would trust in Christ in Jerusalem. And it's going to be Peter's responsibility, along with the others who would be called into this work, to know them, to know the sheep, and to know the lambs. And I want to encourage you to fight to do this because we encourage families to worship together. And kids, when you're in the room, and kiddos, if you're here, I want you to try to understand everything that I'm saying, and I want to try to make as many things as I'm saying understandable to you. But I want you to be here, and I want you to know that for your mom and dad, they want to teach you, and mom and dad, I want to challenge you as your children are sitting here, and they're just kind of drawn or whatever, they're picking up more than you realize. And Ransom usually gives me a report, my son Ransom, when he's in here, if if I'm doing good or bad. And sometimes you don't see him, but he's in the back, and he's going like this. Speed it up, Dad. Speed it up. (laughs) Parents, I want to encourage you. Uh, One of the ways that I can help feed your children, and our pastors and leaders can help feed, is to encourage you to help and, and equip you to help you be able to do this for them. And they're going to pick up some things that I say and come to you with questions. But then, for you, you're going to have to come and you're going to have to teach them some things. And I want to do everything we can to make sure that we are tending and feeding the children and the adults. And for everybody that's working downstairs, this is a great responsibility to know where we're at and to teach people in an appropriate way the best that we can. Tend my sheep or feed my lambs. Feed the sheep. Peter's commissioned to feed both groups. Third observation from the roundabout between Peter and Jesus. Tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. So feed and feed. Tend. What does tend mean? We already said it. Shepherd, to guide or to rule the sheep. Jesus tells Peter to lead them. Sheep need guidance. Peter, I need you to guide them. I want you to guide them, Peter, and I want you to lead them. Lead the sheep. Now, it's an interesting call, and we're going to talk specifically to pastors here in a second, so non-pastors in the room, just consider this. Um, The Bible's not demeaning you, and he's calling you sheep, okay? And a pastor is also a sheep. But so often, the difficult thing in pastoral ministry is that often sheep believe they don't need a shepherd and that they can just do things on themselves by themselves, that they don't need help or guidance. And then so often pastors are trying to lead in such a way they don't think they're actually sheep themselves. The problem we end up getting is that we have pastors that get savior complexes, think I'm going to lead and I'm the Savior, I'm what they need, they are my possession, and then sheep who don't want to be possessed by anyone, and there's just conflict. And sadly, there are so many churches and pastors who have no relationship whatsoever. There's just a coldness there or an awkwardness. And I can be awkward sometimes, but I hope when we're together that there's real friendship here. I was encouraged growing up and going to college, you can't have friends in your church. If you're a pastor, don't have friends in your church. They will chew you up and spit you out. But if this is a reality, loving, feeding, where you're getting nourished on God's Word and by God's Word, 
and there is leading in the way that God is called to lead and nourishing and tending, then we can actually have a good relationship. By God's grace, I can have friends and be friends with you. I don't have to be afraid that you guys are going to beat us up, and you don't have to be afraid that we're going to come and beat you up. But sadly, this goes awry everywhere. Take responsibility for them, Peter. Under the banner of responsibility or tend or rule are things like pray with them, counsel them, love, with, love them, discipline them, hold them accountable, cry with them, confess your sins to them, Peter. Take responsibility for them. Ruling the sheep for Peter and for everybody else who's called into the pastor, pastoral ministry, ruling the sheep is not a right to demand, it's a responsibility to bear. And this is important. Where is Peter leading them? Well, they're Jesus' sheep. So Peter's leading them to Jesus. That's where sheep need to be led. That's where they, needed to be they need to be guided toward. And so when we gather here every single week, that's why I want you to hold me accountable. If we, as a, as a church or a leadership, if we are not leading you to Jesus every single week, we are not doing our job. Because you don't in the end need to follow me. You need to follow us as we follow Christ. We are pointing you to Jesus and we're running to Him together. Tend my sheep, Peter. This is not about Peter's vision or his leadership bus. This is about Peter ruling, leading the sheep around and toward the rule of Jesus. It's like Jesus saying, hey Peter, just bring them to me. Just bring them to me. Tend my sheep. They're mine. So lead them to me. Rule in that way. And then fourth, the fourth observation between Peter and Jesus conversation. We're all kind of on the edge of our seat. You know, we're kind of watching and it's, it's, it's like, okay, this is Jesus and Peter, it's going down. What else is he going to say? Well, four, we see grace on display. We see Peter's restoration. Here's the truth. Peter denied Jesus, his Savior and Lord. The God-man Jesus, Peter denied him. Denied even knowing him. I don't know that man. Peter deserved to be publicly called to account for his denials. What sin can be worse than publicly denying that you even know Jesus? He deserved public exposure for his sin. What he deserved was judgment for that action. He deserved punishment for denying the very Son of God. But what had just happened to Jesus? Peter's responsible for his own sin for his own choices, for his own action, his own denials. He should be punished and held, account, held, held to account for his actions. But it was Jesus called to account. Publicly called to account for Peter. It was Jesus who was called, a, called to account publicly for Peter's denial. It's like Jesus went to the cross and saying, I'll take the blame for you denying me, Peter. 
I'll stand in your place and take the punishment you deserve. I'll stand and take the very wrath for your denial. Jesus was exposed to public shame instead of Peter. Jesus took the punishment Peter earned. Therefore, Peter receives grace. Peter receives mercy. There were better options here, Jesus. If we could sit and be your company of counselors, we could talk to you and say it was John that needs to hear this from you. Not Peter, Jesus. If you're going to commission publicly anybody to leadership here, it's not Peter. Call on John. We've seen what Peter will do. He'll buckle under the pressure, and pressure is sure to come. You promised us. It's not going to be Peter who's going to stay faithful to the end here, Jesus. Call on somebody else. But it's Jesus and Peter. Peter the one whom Jesus talks to. Peter is the one who is restored. And I'm going to look at three ways that Peter was restored. Restoration point number one. Peter was reinstated the responsibility, his responsibility to the sheep. Peter's restoration. In this passage we see that Jesus gives to Peter, and he doesn't explicitly mention anybody else, although the, the responsibilities given to Peter are applicable to other pastors. He specifically talks to Peter in the company of peers, and he gives the responsibility over what is his to Peter. Jesus affirms Peter's leadership role, and he commissions him publicly to the work. There could be no mistaking that day who it was that Jesus was talking to when Jesus said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, and feed my lambs. There was no mistaking who it was that Jesus was talking to. It was Peter. Peter, you're still in this. Peter, you're mine. I'm not done with you, Peter. Far from it. Far from it. Jesus wants the others to know as well that He is not done with Peter. Secondly, the second way Jesus restores Peter to the work is He tells Peter about Peter's future faithfulness. Now this is interesting. The last time Jesus spoke to Peter about his future, it was in John 13. And it was about Peter's denial. In John 13, verse 36, we find this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot come. Oh, excuse me, I messed it up. Uh, before, in verse 21 through 30, Jesus tells Peter of his denial. And Peter denies that he's going to deny Jesus. And he said, no, I will go to you even to death. I would die for you, Jesus. Well, Peter, in fact, does deny Jesus, and that was a sad future. But this time, Jesus tells Peter about his future again. And what is that future he tells him about? Well, look at verse 18. 21-18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's coming news, Peters. Peter, Peter, you're going to die for me. You're going to die. Your hands will be stretched out and you'll walk a road that you don't want to walk. 
but you're going to die for me. (laughs) And somehow or another, this is comforting news. It's good for Peter to hear. The very thing you said that you would do before I died for you, now you will do for me. In other words, Jesus is saying, you said you were going to die for me, Peter, and you denied me. I died for you. I died in your place. It's not going to be you who dies for me in my place. I'm going to die for you, Peter. And when Peter is confident about Jesus' death for Peter, Jesus is willing to die. Peter is willing to die as a martyr. I'll give my life to him. Peter doesn't die in the place of Jesus. Meaning, he's not a substitutionary sacrifice. He dies willingly to glorify Jesus. And somehow or another to Peter, this restorative word, Peter, you're going to finish this thing. You're going to die for me. You're not going to abandon me. You're going to be there at the end. The end of your life, you're going to love me and you're in fact going to die for me. And here's the thing. Jesus looks at me and says, Jared, you're going to die for me. There's a level of comfort to know that in the end of this thing, when I die, when I take my last breath, it's going to be me and Jesus. And friends, if you're in Christ... Your dying breath, it's you and Jesus. Peter will actually die for the glory of Jesus. And he's told this publicly. And I want you to hear this and hear it as loud and soft as possible. The death of every Christian, every one of them, is for the glory of Jesus. Every one of them. Because death, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is gain for the Christian, it's not loss. Death is glorious for every Christian because we don't look at death the same way as everybody else. For everybody else, death is loss. But for every believer, just like Peter's death for Jesus, it is glorious. Life complete. You are now forever with Him. And you're not abandoned. Death is not a sign of damnation for you. Death for every believer is reward. Gain. Finally, we will wake to see His face. That, week, that song we sang last week, we'll wake to see His face. What song was that? Rock of Ages. We'll wake to see His face. There's going to be a day we open our eyes. We really come to life. And we see Jesus. Death is gain. So the future of Peter isn't of denial. It's of His death for the glory of Jesus. And then finally... Jesus says to Peter the same thing He said to Peter in the book of Matthew, follow Me. After saying these things, this is 19 part B, after saying these things, He said to, them, said to him, follow Me. Follow Me. Well, Peter does. He follows Jesus. This call once again on his life, come, follow Me, is given to Peter says it to him again, and how, must, how wonderful it must have been for Peter to know that his past was truly behind him. And he is now following Jesus once again. For so many of us, we look at our past and it's just it chains us. We just can't escape it. We look back and we consider things that we did or things that we didn't do, and it's almost like internally we cringe if we don't externally. And here's the promise of life in Christ. You can leave it all behind. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's not who you are. You don't have to be trapped there. Peter, you don't have to be trapped in your denial of me. Move on. Move forward. 
Get past that. Let's go. Get your head up. Put your eyes on me. Let's move forward. This is Jesus and Peter. Follow me. But this is interesting because we see that Peter remains Peter. <laughs> he remains Peter. I mean, goofy Peter. I think we can say that if Peter was here and we, we called him Goofy Peter, he'd probably put his hands in his pocket and say, kind of am, but I really am bonkers about Jesus. You know, like, so, I, yep, I'm Goofy. I need him. Because look at verse 20. It's fascinating. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So at some point in this conversation, it, Jesus is like, Peter, let's go. And then John's kind of like, following. And Peter looks back and he sees John. And Jesus and Peter begin to talk again, and here's what Peter says. The one who leaned back on him and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter looks back, points, John, what about John? And Jesus said, don't worry about John. I can deal with John. You follow me. It's, no, it's not of your concern what I do or don't do with John. I'm here and I'm asking you and calling you, follow me, no matter what. No if, ands, or buts about it. If John's life looks different than your life, Peter, that's okay. You follow me. And I want to say to you, what God has for you is different than what God has for me. Not purpose of your life. He has the same thing for the purpose of your life. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Same purpose and same commission. Same commission, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Same purpose and mission. But as far as what your life is going to look like and what my life is going to look like, it's going to be different. And he's got plans and purposes with you that are different than his plans and purposes with me. And they're mysterious, and so often they're secret, and so often we're wondering what they are. We know that this is God's will for you, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4 something. It's in 1 Thessalonians somewhere. But Peter remained Peter. We don't get to covet each other's callings, giftings, or life. Peter remained Peter. He even later, we remember later about Peter, even after this whole commissioning that happens and his public restoration, and even after preaching to 3,000 3, people coming to the faith. Imagine the revival of that day, being there at Pentecost, and the excitement that's just bubbling up inside of everybody. Can you believe it? I bet nobody slept that night. Can you believe what happened? But even after all that, in Galatians 2, we find out that Peter was at Antioch and there were some Christian brothers who came up from Jerusalem. And when they showed up, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and started only eating with the Jews. And he began to separate himself. And he was clearly out of line and Paul had to confront Peter to his face. Peter had struggles and battles and indwelling sin that remained with him all the days of his life. That's why he needed Jesus so much. Peter didn't grow out of his need for Jesus as he grew in Christ's likeness. 
You never grow out of your need for Him. Sanctification isn't about growing in less and less need of Jesus. It's about growing in a greater awareness of your desperate need in Jesus, of Jesus. Peter would be the first to tell you, my life has not been about my faithfulness to Jesus. My life has been a testimony of Jesus' faithfulness to me. And it's the same with me, and it's the same with you. The book closes. We finish our close to a year-long journey, and I'm so thankful for our time that we've been in this book. Verse 24 and 25, look with me. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are, many, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John the evangelist saw these things. He witnessed them with his own eyes. He walked with Jesus. He saw Him resurrected. And he wrote this book that people would believe Jesus is who He says He is. He isn't a liar. He isn't a crazy person. He is God in the flesh. And if that's true, it changes everything. And He wants us to know it. And He wants us to believe. If you'll believe in Him, you will have life in His name. Life, even now. Life, eternity, for eternal and evermore, but even now. Life beginning now, if you'll believe in His name. We in fact conclude with John that those two things are true. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing, we have found life in His name. And I would ask you today, if you don't know Jesus, I will say, like Peter, you are not too far. You are not too far gone. You have not sinned enough. Your sins, yes, they are many, and we do not want to minimize that. Your sins are far many than you even know. But His mercy is more. The the audacious claim that some people would think that their sins outweigh God's mercy. Who do you think you are? So this morning, here's what I call you to do. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Agree that He is God in the flesh. That He is the Savior of the world. And you have life in His name. And if you're a believer in here, brother or sister, let's enjoy these songs. If we exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then we can enjoy singing about redemption. Singing about the cross. Singing about the resurrection. Let joy be unleashed in your heart this morning. Believe and have life in His name. Let's let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your mercy. Our sins, they are many. That is so true. So many more than we realize and know. Your mercy is infinite. It just is. Not a single person in here. If anybody could have been too far from You, it was me. Even though I was a five-year-old boy. I was as far as anybody. And you miraculously saved a little kid who grew up in church. How amazing is that? An absolute stunning miracle. And there are many in here whose testimony is different. They didn't darken a step of a door their entire life, a church church door their entire life, ran their entire life, or didn't even know about God, didn't even believe in God. And then all of a sudden, God shows up, and now they're in Christ. 
So God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.